Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. My name is Miles Morales. I'm Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. And things are going great. Oh, yeah. You were supposed to be here at five. All right, whatever. Whatever? Wow. Whatever? Miles' grades are pretty good. A in AP Physics. That's my little man. And a B in Spanish. What? Ooh, okay. Miles. Are you trying Mira, to kill me? Mira, that's what I gotta go. All right, bye. He's lying to you. And I think you know it. What's up, danger? Miles! Wanna get out of here? Oh, when? So wait a minute. There's an elite crew with all the best spider people in it? Uh, who's the new guy? This is unbelievable. This is the lobby. Miguel O'Hara. The whole thing was his idea. What's a guy gotta do to join this spider team? You can never be part of this. Don't even get me started on Doctor Strange and the little nerd back on Earth 1999-99. Come on, go easy on the kid. He had a terrible teacher. Peter. Miles. Mayday. You have a baby? I have a baby. <laughs> I'll take it from here. Miles, being Spider-Man is a sacrifice. You have a choice between saving one person and saving every world. Send me home. I can't do that. I can do both! Spider-Man always... Not always. What about Uncle Ben? If not for Uncle Ben, most of us wouldn't be here. Can't stop me now! You can't run forever, kid! I can't lose one more friend. Miguel, this isn't what we talked about! You knew? I had no idea what you're doing! Everyone keeps telling me how my story is supposed to go. Nah, I'm gonna do my own thing. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the second movie in Miles Morales' Spider-Man trilogy, and a sequel to 2018's Oscar winner Into the Spider-Verse, swings into theaters this week. Joining us in this episode to talk about the design of the spider people and the movie's stylized look are production designer Patrick O'Keefe and character designer Chris Anka of Sony Pictures Animation. Columbia and Sony Pictures Animation's Across the Spider-Verse takes place roughly a year after the events in the first film and brings Marvel's Miles Morales back into the multiverse where he meets the Spider Society. Phil Lord and Christopher Miller are returning to lead the charge as writers and producers, and it's directed by Joaquin Dos Santos, Kemp Powers, and Justin K. Thompson. The story concludes with Spider-Man Beyond the Spider-Verse, a sequel scheduled for a 2024 release. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Welcome, Chris and Patrick. Hey, how's it going? Hello there. So congratulations, and how does it feel to have the movie finally hitting theaters? Uh, thank you, and thank you very much for having us. Um, it feels incredible. I've been on this thing for um, just over four years and four months, um, and 
So it is an incredibly exciting opportunity to have this thing get out there and just see all the awesome artwork. And we're starting to see a reception starting to come in. And it's these films, we tend to push the envelope a little bit. And I think we get a little um, out of even our own comfort zone. And so to then see it being welcomed into the larger audience, into the world with a uh, with a warm reception is a very, um, it's a relief. And it, and then that gives way to excitement and, um, and, a, and, a, and, a on, uh, and a tidal wave of happiness. Yeah. It still doesn't, it doesn't really feel f- real, you know, like I've, I've been on this for a little over three years myself and just been working on it at home this whole time. It kind of doesn't feel like it's a, you know, real movie that's coming out there, but we're here and it's out there and people are loving it, which is great. Hopefully it'll feel more real once, you know, it's actually, I'm seeing people actually see the movie. What is it like working with the team, including, of course, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller? Working with this team, this has got to be one of the most experimental team uh, teams I've ever worked with, unless I go back to, like, college. Uh, this really felt like we were making a ginormous blockbuster bespoke art film. Um and Phil and Chris really bring that attitude to the filmmaking process. They have this um, this this philosophy that this is a film made by a lot of people, first and foremost. And so it is a group of filmmakers all working together, coming together. Um, no idea uh, um, is left sort of, no stone is left unturned. No idea is ever shut down. It's an exploratory process. We're always looking for opportunities to do more, to make it better, to push um, further and further and by any means necessary. And so artists, editors, designers, uh, even the actors are just, you know, there's a lot of um, improv improv happening. And I think that's what leads to to some really great things, some really great ideas that would, would have never, have, you couldn't plan for a lot of these things. They have to come out sort of organically through the filmmaking process. Um, as well, they are the type of filmmakers who will back any great idea. And so we've had some really crazy ideas over the last four years that I think um, may have made some people uncomfortable. Um, and they're like, yes, that's exactly where we should be going with it. We should be pushing as far as we can and trying out every idea we possibly can. And it can get a little chaotic at times, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of that because it really does feel like a group of friends and a group of artists that are just working together to create something without ego, something that is um, going to be something unique, that is going to be something experimental, that's going to be something that we enjoy making. So the first movie had this bold comic book aesthetic that you built on in this film. Um, Patrick, do you want to just start by talking about the uh, the approach to the visual style? Sure. Um, at its core, what we really wanted to do was make the authentic comic book experience for all of our fans and friends and even for ourselves you know i i remember as a kid reading comic books and it's sort of like you're laying there your your mom's already told you to turn the light off you've got the comic book sort of pressed up under your nose uh, your nose with your flashlight you can smell the ink you can you can you can see what's being printed how the paper is being printed on the little fibers and the the what we call the what are called the bende dots and the line work and it's this experience of of comic books not just necessarily how they look in the final process but your experience and relationship to them and so when it came to making the film we really wanted to make an homage to the comic book making process and the experience that we have all um have all had with them as fans 
and share that love for those that didn't have it and kind of bring them into to our world and our experience. And as such, we started sort of peeling apart the comic book in a lot of ways. Um, in Miles's world, which is represented in the first film as well as this film, it's about bringing that it's a modern kind of modern comic book technique. Um, those bende dots, the line, the hatching, the line work, the more graphic style, the the automatopoeia that are popping up, bringing all that onto the screen, but then celebrating the artists that make these things. And so I've always told everyone on the team and on the film, like, I want to see your hand. I, I, we want to see the evidence of the artist's hand that created the comic. And so we have characters that'll get sketchy in places. We have environments that'll sort of break down into sketches and just line work. And you can see, you know, even literally my fingerprints are in part of this film because I've smudged the ink that is going into the into the film because that's really what's being done. The artist's hand is evident in every part. And so it's a, it's an ode to comic books, but it's sort of an ode and an homage and a, and a love letter to how comic books and, and art is made in general. Um, and then as we go through the different universes, the different Spider-Verses in this film, we, we approach them as sort of different eras of comic book making, different styles of comic book making. And um, what we really wanted it to feel like in this film as opposed to the first film was this feeling that you are, you've walked into your favorite comic book shop and you're walking down the aisles and you're seeing all your favorite comic books, um, one next to the other. It is such a rich and diverse um, art form, comic book making, just like all the artists that are making it. I think it's one of the most diverse art forms there is out there. And so again, sort of paying homage to that and where we've come from and representing all those different art forms in one film was an, an, a challenge, but a, a very exciting one. Well, let's talk about some of the multiverse and uh, some of the spider people. The first one, um, let's talk about Miguel O'Hara, who is one of the new spider people voiced by Oscar Isaac. Chris, do you want to describe his look? Yeah, yeah. Miguel was, um, funny enough, Miguel was my day one assignment. So it was, you know, not daunting at all. Um, but what was really cool kind of about how the whole process was started was we, we he had appeared in the very post credits of the first movie. Um, but with this movie, Phil and Chris and the directors involved really wanted kind of a new holistic look at everything. Just because things were done great doesn't mean things couldn't be done better the second time around. And so they really wanted me to just make my own sort of statement with the character and how I would approach um, and so we kind of really started from a place of we can do anything we want. And, you know, the process was really fluid. We kind of like were working with, you know, Omar Smith, the, the modeler with it. We we're kind of going back and forth. Um, and we reached a point where like, you know, maybe we can add some more um, culture to the character and kind of really make sort of Miguel's Mexican roots a bit more evident in the actual design of of the costume. And, you know, that was an incredibly sort of enriching um, sort of assignment. You know, to, to my earlier point of there was always another pass at characters that kind of elevated everything. And this was one of those of we had this cool suit that, like, that hit the, hit the mark, that did everything we needed to do, but then we, we could add so much more richness to it. And, you know, spending another good six months on this design... And just looking into Mesoamerica and looking into patterns and culture and different motifs and kind of like how far can we add that to this design that doesn't overwhelm and break it, but to a point that, 
you know, there's like four or five levels of detail on this suit to really kind of like, you know, you look at it far away, it has a really clean silhouette. But you look at it a little bit closer, you start noticing a little more details. And you look at it really close, there's even more details that sort of don't overwhelm, but add a little bit of complexity and a little bit of, um, you know, I think taste to it, you know, it has a fuller taste that, you know, there's there's kind of no part of it that feels not thought out. You know, I look I look at the design two years later, and there's nothing about it that like I wish I changed or I was I, I'm unhappy that we left it kind of on the cutting room floor. They're like, oh, everything that we had put in is there. Everything was thought about thoroughly and sort of made up with this design that I'm incredibly proud of, and I think it sort of like lives up to the kind of pedigree that the first movie sort of laid out. And then uh, Miguel lives in uh, Nueva York, and um, I understand this was actually inspired by Sid Mead's work. Uh, Patrick, could you talk about that? Sure. So um, the the approach for Nueva York, um, again, we want to always go back to the roots and sort of celebrate where they came from. Um, and Miguel O'Hara sort of was born out of the character in the world of Nueva York in the comics, was sort of born out of this 70s, 80s, futurism um, that many, many artists uh, were a part of, Sid Mead being certainly one of the most famous, John Berkey as well, was a big uh, inspiration on this film. And so instead of just just doing what the comics were, we kind of wanted to dive a little deeper and and go back to that era of design and, and, um, and painting. A lot of those designers at that time, they didn't start as a comic book artist. Sid Mead didn't start as a... As a um, uh, film designer. They all started as industrial designers, um, and they were trained as industrial designers to design boats and, and cars and vehicles and, and architecture. And so um, I asked all the artists to sort of pick up this approach. Let's get our, our T-squares and our set squares and our, our drafting pencils and our, our thin inkers, and let's try designing this world from a, an extremely architectural point of view to represent this this era, this retro, what would come to be called this sort of retrofuturism, um, and, and put that the artist's hand then on the screen. The reason for that, in addition to just going back to sort of that era and a callback and an homage to those, those wonderful artists that have designed so much and influenced generations, is looking at the character of Miguel O'Hara. He's this sort of authoritarian figure, um, he is a, a man who likes to have a plan. Things are done a certain way. There's a precision to everything, and he'd like everything to go according to plan. To me, that really spoke to that sort of industrial design approach to to um, to design and painting and and overall the overall look of the film. And so, leaning into those structures sort of helped establish who the character was. The environment, and I had this sort of philosophy that the um, the environment should say the things that the characters can't. You know, a character can't come out and say, "I'm an authoritarian figure, authoritative figure, and and I like things a certain way." So we need to represent that in the set design. We need to represent that in the render script, and it'll help influence and, and express those things that the audience should be picking up on if we've done our job right. So let's talk about Jessica Drew, uh, Spider Woman, voiced by Asa Ray. Um, Patrick, could you tell us about her? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, Jessica Drew's character is uh, one of my absolute favorites on the film. Um, again, going back to what the film needed, we needed a strong character. This is an opportunity for Gwen Stacy from the first film, um, also Spider-Woman, to 
find a mentor. This this film's a lot about mentorship and finding one's own path and defining one's own path. And so for the role of uh, Spider-Woman from Earth-332, Jessica Drew, we wanted to make a really powerful character, a very strong character. And um, when we discovered Issa Rae would be doing the voicing, it really sort of pushed and led the design. Um, she's, she's a pretty badass woman. She's riding a motorcycle. We wanted her to feel very luxe. Gwen is a very, um, kind of DIY spider. She's a p- absolute pro, but she's a teenager. Um, and she's got, kind of got her like Chuck Taylors on. Spider Woman, we wanted to elevate to, uh, in Jessica Drew's case, into this high art fashion almost fashion illustration, very high art. So we put her in um, very expensive designer outfit. She's got the confidence to not um, wear a mask. She's one of the few spiders who has her face out there. Um, she's got this awesome motorcycle. I always love to find artists that really know what they're talking about. Um, I know nothing about motorcycles. And so we r- roped in um, Will Coiner, who is actually one of our character painters. He's a real bike head. And we had the initial designs of sort of what the what the, what we needed for animation. I gave it to Will and was like, "Is this a motorcycle? Like, is this actually a motorcycle? What would you do here?" What I need the motorcycle people in the audience to really look at it and say, "Yes, they they recognize me. Oh, they did it right." And the thing with the fender is great. I don't even know if a motorcycle has a fender, but leaning into the expertise of the artist to bring that forward. And then for Jessica herself, we. Um, Enlisted the help of um, Brian Stelfries, who's a fantastic comic book artist uh, who does some fashion art design, does these beautiful ink washes, has a real confidence in his brush. As well, he's um, one of the artists from who's done so many Black Panther um, comic books and has a real sensitivity and understanding um, of rendering darker skin and and bringing, you know, he brought this excellent brushwork to the dense curls that are in her ginormous afro that just screams sort of power and and confidence and working with brian this veteran in the trade um gave gave us sort of the confidence to make sure we were bringing bringing forth this character that just felt again powerful strong confident so she could fulfill the role that she needs to in the film as this mentor to gwen whom is already one of you know these very powerful confident women within the movie itself and then Daniel Kaluuya joins cast as Spider-Punk. He's in a band. Uh, would you tell us about his look? Yeah, Spider-Punk was a really fun one. Um, speaking of mentors, my mentor, Justin K. Thompson, um, he is a punk. You know, I'm the graffiti head on the crew. Chris Anka is a real comic book uh, uh, encyclopedia. So I'm great when it comes to Miles. Chris will handle all the spiders. And and Justin, um production designer on the first film, now director, he grew up in this punk era. And so he, I got a real education on the punk era, which I, I missed out on as a being born in the 80s and being a hip-hop kid. Um, and he would bring in all these old punk posters and gave me uh, uh, books of punk posters. And what we... I. I, I thought he was just going to, I I had like a really bad interpretation of what punk is. And I really went to school and, and we started looking at um, like misfits and sex pistols and old zines that were, he would bring in old zines that had been printed back in the day. And um, the wheat pastings that would end up for punk shows on the, in London, on the sides of construction sites. Um, and what we really wanted to do was encapsulate, again, that era and that way of making things. And so for some of the early designs for punk and his world, um, we would be 
I, I had actually happened to go to London a few years ago and took just like a thousand photos as I do everywhere I go. And we started printing them out and cutting them up and taping them back together in Xerox, cut them up again, tape them back together, Xerox. Um, you can see staples within the film and even razor blades that have been left over and people's sort of scribbled handwriting um, to give it this real authentic feeling of that punk scene. And I always like to say, you know, there's this moment, Punk's introduction. Well, it's really Punk's interruption. Um, he doesn't want to play by any of the rules ever. Throughout the film, he is changing into different famous Punk posters that we referenced. Um, he's the, he doesn't believe in consistency in any way, shape, or form, and because that's really the Punk ethos, and it's something we wanted to embody and celebrate on the screen for him. Um, and I think it worked perfectly with Daniel's performance where he was doing a lot of riffing and a lot of improv as as the look of the character doesn't follow the rules, neither did the performance. And then the world itself is described as a mix of uh, 70s and 80s era London and modern day New York. Would you tell us about that environment? Oh, yeah. So just like Punk himself, this world is a collage um, art piece of artwork that would you'd find pasted up on the walls of the punk scenes in London and New York. But now he lives in a world that is all spiders tend to seem to live in a world that is a New York remixed with whatever they sort of bring to the table. And so while making the world, we were cutting up things like Times Square, but sticking Big Ben on it. Um, the the Tower Bridge of Brooklyn, um, uh, these remixes that capture that era of, of London, and but the, the scale of New York. You know, when you get to London, when you're used to living in North America, you kind of realize, oh, this is a lot shorter than I would have expected for these grand cities. So we gave it the, the um, not only the height of New York, but sort of the exaggerated height of the Spider-Verse New York. And so you have these, Big Ben is, you know, 500 stories tall. And on top of um, these glass and steel structures, you have these beautiful um, um, crown pieces with molding. And it's done with the crudeness that a punk poster would be, sort of a razor blade cut up of a, a New York City skyline with the Thames there instead of the East River with the Tower of Brooklyn Bridge crossing it. Um, and it makes for a really fun sort of hodgepodge, um, haphazard environment for a spider to live in. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Chris, aside from the ones that we already talked about, what was a favorite character for you to design? Um, in terms of designs that I'm really proud of, like that I worked on, um, one new character that's getting introduced in this movie, Spider Bite, was um, I think a really kind of like uh, breath of fresh air for me. And, you know, so, so the character is supposed to be this digital avatar that she's projecting into this world from her own home dimension. And it was really fun to kind of find a new way to express a digital person that um, I think then the Vizdev artist with the, you know, Will, Will Corner specifically really took that and ran far. 
and with how she's sort of like showing her colors and how her mood's changing and how we're sort of, you know, really aware of, you know, it's the irony of making a digital character in 3D. So like the, like let's lean into the polygons of it and not sort of hide the fact that she isn't this digital being. Um, and I think the design was so great coming from the comics. And so it was a really kind of fun, interesting challenge to sort of take this character who was able to sort of express herself in her own way and kind of always change how she looks and kind of how does that per sort of personify. Um, so it was, she was probably one of the, 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 the big, but I mean, it's really hard for me given like I've designed so many other of the spiders. It's really hard to find like one, um, I'd say if another uh, that's a highlight for me it was the Sun Spider, um, and she's featured on the posters, and she's gonna have a, a fun time in the movie. But it was really sort of a great challenge and an exciting moment when the the assignment came down from Phil through Justin to me to to we're gonna add this character in there um, and being able to make a spider who's differently abled was was inc- was an incredible you know time and really trying to find a way to authentically elevate and showcase um this person this character and you know I was I was snooping around the you know the creator's twitter and I was looking at people talking about this uh, the character from the comics and really seeing you know, what were the elements and, you know, the compression shorts and the harnesses and the, the wheelchair and really finding as much specificity as I could to make sure it was this authentic um, depiction. You know, you didn't want it, you don't want it to feel like it was half-baked or, you know, this design was just sort of something we threw out there. You really want every character, you know, we, we have that saying, you know, anyone can wear a mask, but you want everyone to feel like these were fully holistic characters that anyone can sort of see themselves in and you don't want anyone to like, oh man, I wish they had done something more, or, you know, with any of these characters. Um, so that one was really kind of a fun and in sort of humbling, you know, assignment for me of like, oh, this is actually like, I understood from the moment of like, oh, this is important. Of like, we need to make sure this is done well, this is done creatively and it doesn't just sort of feel like an afterthought of a, of a of a character. And how many did you end up? Just how many characters did you end up designing for us, Chris? It's in the. It is between depending because I don't know exactly how many make it to screen. It is between one hundred and fifty and one hundred and eighty. And rest assured, you drew each one of them at least more than <laughs> once. So yeah, yeah, it certainly got your spider. It was a great time, man. It's a great time. What was the most challenging day for you, and what were you trying to accomplish? I mean, in terms of challenging Miles, designing, like being asked to design a new suit for Miles was incredibly challenging. I mean, I mean honestly, I don't know how much Patrick could, could see it, um, but I struggled with Miles for a long time. It was sort of A, daunting, but B, it didn't, like they wanted, what was really nice about this movie and kind of the sort of operandus of the whole movie was just because it was good doesn't mean we can't do a better job and you know that suit from the first movie has become iconic at this point and being asked of like yeah but like the fun of superhero movies is we get a new suit let's try something different and i just could not get over that i could not figure out how do i break the mold and do something different and new that still feels fresh and 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 true to miles 
Um, and I, I and it, it honestly, it wasn't. I did eighty four designs for Miles, and it wasn't until seventy eight that it started to click for me. I'm like, oh, because I remember I turned in that last pass, and I was like, now I got it. Now I understand what we feel like to, to to do something that no one is expecting to see, and. It was just kind of like kind of how I thought about like, oh, change up the textures, change up the fabrics, change up kind of the breaking, change up the paint on the suit. Like it was less so much of like, oh, I need to figure out how to make what was there work. It was more of like, just just throw it all out. Just start fresh like you're a 15 year old kid who wants to make a new look for the year. And like, how do I just reinvent how I want to be? And it, it really kind of was like, oh, like what if I start doing holographic paints? What if I start doing different fabrics that a kid would find in you know an athletic store and kind of mix matching all of that together and then from there you know it went off the design went off to i think very hands-on with both justin the director and will coiner they kind of like took all of the elements i had sort of laid out like these are the fabrics these are the cuts and they sort of built that final suit out of it but it was such a like whirlwind of a process to of to kind of get out of my own head of of how do I live up to that first thing, but then be like, okay, no, no, no. Now I understand. I'm like, just run with this and just kind of throw new things at the wall and see what sticks. And that was sort of like the exciting part of the whole movie because the whole movie is sort of that idea. And would you tell us about Pavitra? Pav, as we've come to call him, Pavitra, is this lovable character. And he actually went through many, many rounds of design and, and many artists as... Again, we always address these, uh, we, we confront these sort of design problems as sometimes I refer to them as, um, as what does the film need? And this Pav's importance in the film, he's a, he's a fully fleshed character. He's a totally amazing character. He's one of my favorite characters. He, he got better and better as the film went on, but was, what does he mean in relationship to Miles? And, um, in, in this film, we wanted him to feel like a highly capable, fully fleshed out character, somebody who's very confident and very strong, but very easygoing. And he sort of hasn't run into the, some of the troubles, let's say, that Miles has. And so um, we went through making him older and younger and finding the sweet spot where he didn't, we never were, were turning him into a child, but I, he's a formidable um, ally that for Miles to have and someone who can really hold his own. When it came to um, doing anything that we do, we always try to get to the source. And we never want to make judgment calls from an uneducated point of view. And so we were working with some consultants from um, Pav is Indian. And um, as we all learned, and some of us already knew, you know, there's no monolith that is India. It's a country that speaks 40 different languages, has countless different ethnic groups, and we wanted to be very specific and not just sort of gloss over and say, we've got an Indian Spider-Man and here's your stereotype. And so we were working with cultural um, consultants. Um, many of the artists working on the project um, happen to be, just happen to be Indian and they're just fantastic artists. And so we were leaning into their expertise and their knowledge as well. And as well, and when we got into the overall look and design of Pavithra and his world, looking into even the way comic books are printed in India that is different than they are printed here. Um, the, the difference in the inks that they use and the types of papers that they use and even 
they just have different brush pens there for some reason. It's just culturally a different place. And we love that stuff. Those differences are what makes this world a beautiful place. And I think what makes this film a beautiful place, uh, a beautiful film, is that we embrace and sort of celebrate all those differences and don't look for the monolith, don't look to homogenize, but enjoy the the differences and the eccentricities and the varieties that we have. And so Pavitra... Um, represents you know a slice of what that culture is he doesn't stand for the entire culture itself but he's a very fun lovable character that um that that uh celebrates celebrates who he is and where he comes from and then he lives in an area that you call Mumbatten, which combines elements of manhattan and mumbai uh would you talk about that look Yes. Um, so Pavitra inhabits this incredible world called Mumbai, and it's the combination of Mumbai and Manhattan. And we wanted to bring together the cultures the, and diversity of Mumbai to the heightened scale of, of Manhattan. And so we, you know, in the first film, we made this this New York that is is big, and it's an exaggerated version of Manhattan. Here we went a thousand times further. There are buildings on tops of buildings and bridges headed in every direction. It's the perfect world for a Spider-Man to inhabit. Um, it's densely full of traffic, you know, which is a very Mumbai thing to do, even more so than Manhattan. I think they would love the uh, traffic problems of Manhattan and Mumbai. Um, and putting in all those different cultures that we talked about. And so working with the team and our cultural consultants, we tried to represent as many different languages um, throughout the film, local languages, the signage signage is in Hindi or it's in, um, it's, there's lots of English as well, but it's in, I'm trying to remember all the different languages we use. I have a list of 40 of them somewhere, um, as well as representing the different cultures. You have Sikh uh, Indians next to Muslim Indians, all working, you know, living and working together, much like the, the world that is Mumbai. Um, and we didn't want to make it, ancient as well. You know, there's a Western tendency to um, make India feel like this ancient place. We really wanted to feel like a modern bustling metropolis. And so we have that mixture of old and new and these giant skyscrapers next to these ancient temples um, and all of this world kind of coexisting at the same time. And what was uh, your biggest challenge or most challenging day? Oh, boy, I had so many. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier, what Chris was saying was really true. It's, this was a film in which um, we wanted to challenge ourselves on a daily basis, and we wanted to push the film as far as we could every time we could. And so I think the constant challenge for me was always like we would get some something to a very good place where we we felt it was really good and always trying to then remove sort of the effort and remove the the work away from the final product. Um, I like to always tell the artists, it's, um, you're going to create this artwork and it's yours and you, you need to love it and be passionate about it. And then we're going to put it on the wall and it's none of ours and it's the films. And is it what the film needs? And there is this challenge that happens where you see something beautiful and you see the hard work that was taken to create it. And it um, might not be the right thing for the film and understanding the difference between great, good, good, great artwork and what is right for the film can be a challenge at times. And you can sort of mission drift into things you fall in love with. But is it truly what's needed for the film? And so there are all types of sets and ideas and probably hundreds of thousands of drawings that have 
that that got us along the way there that you'd love to see on screen, but they weren't what was just right for the film in that right moment. And so um, there's this constant challenge to look at things with fresh eyes. And I think as you get entrenched in these films over four years, it's hard to see sometimes where this film needs to go so it can end up on screen and, and be well-received. And as a first-time production designer, that was really my challenge, was not falling in love with anything until it was it was absolutely the right thing for the film. Could you share a couple of Easter eggs we could look for? And not, not in terms of where you'll find them, but um, Miles Morales' creators are Brian Michael Bendis and Sarah Pacelli. And uh, as a graffiti artist, I take uh, on the challenge of slipping in as many graffiti Easter eggs as I can throughout the film. And so both of their names are, are placed in a very um, awesome, big, uh, noticeable spot that I'm hoping people will pick up. Um, in terms of other Easter eggs, something we love to do is shout out the filmmakers as well. And so I believe all the filmmakers at some point in time have their name on a billboard or a street sign or a um, shop. I always ask the artists, um, just while designing sets, you know, think about this as this isn't just a tea shop. This is your mother's tea shop. And so put her into this. What would that be? What would that feel like? And 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 find that authenticity there as well. Um, Chris, any favorite Easter eggs you snuck in? I mean, I uh, yeah, well, there's two. I didn't do them myself, but I asked, I asked for them. Um, I think one really cool one is for people to look at is look at the pins and the patches on Punk. Because I think most of them are based on the uh, art crew. So, like, all of our names are all over punk um, in, in some of the pins, and that's fun. Um, and another one that I didn't do, but it was kind of like a little throwback to me, was that I when I worked at... Mar I used to work for Marvel Comics, and one of the designs I had done for them was uh, Miguel's second white costume. Um, and so in the background of some of the scenes, you can see that he's working on that suit. Um, so it's kind of hidden amongst sort of Miguel's stuff, but that was a really cool kind of thing to see that uh, the great visitive artists sort of put in. I think there are also some toys to look for in Mayday's crib. Oh, there's some very cute plushes in Mayday's crib that um, are going to be an absolute hit. And one very silly one that's just a very random story is um, we're always making signs. There's, so, there's millions of signs in this movie. I wish I were being hyperbolic. Um, the one, and we're always trying to connect it to the Spider-Man universe. In we we made a real estate sign, and we were thinking, oh, the the Watsons, the you know, the, the Parker and, and Mary Jane Watson. What if her dad was a real estate agent? And then, of course, we checked in with legal. We have to spend everything to legal, as as you should. It turns out there's only one person who has the same name as her father and in America, it would turn out, and he is actually a real estate agent. <laughs> and so we had to pull it from the film, and I believe now Mary Jane's mother is uh, a prominent real estate agent within the um, within Miles's universe. Silly little things like that um, that are sort of littered throughout the film. What do the themes of the film mean to each of you? Chris, do you want to start? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think sort of the theme in, in very much it reflects on like the, our, our, of how we handled going into this movie as well was, you know, kind of finding your own voice and sort of finding what you want to be. And, and, you know, I think that's a very common problem with sequels 
you know, I think, you know, sequels is this very big hill to climb of trying to be as good as or somehow reflect the first movie, but not finding your own voice. And I think, you know, one really cool thing about this movie was that the whole point was we needed to find kind of our own rhythm with it and not feel like we need to be beholden to what the sequel should be rather than make the movie that can be that was the next accentuation. Like basically we had to grow up with the movie and have the movie grow up with us. Um, which very much feels like kind of like what Miles is going through himself. Uh, yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. That's what it really felt like to me. You know, I'm, again, I said it was a first-time production. There's a lot of first-timers in first-time roles on this film. And I think that's a lot like Miles. He's in a position where it's the first time something so large is being asked of him. And this idea of that um, we're going to write our own story and we shouldn't be beholden to the way things have been done or what's expected of us, but we should go with our instinct and rewrite the canon if we need to, rewrite our destinies if we need to, and make something that um, that we truly believe in. And uh, I couldn't, uh, I see so much of the process of the filmmaking in the film itself and so many of the lessons I learned uh, while making the film um, mean so much to me, um, just how to take responsibility and how to to push and believe in, our, in ourselves as filmmakers. And I think that's something Miles really embodies and so does this film. Congratulations to both of you and the whole team on the film. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah.